I request the Honorable Minister to speak. Thank, thank you, Dharanidharan. Thank you uh, for inviting me to such a distinguished panel. And uh, um, my thanks to the my fellow panelists for joining us as um, in my capacity as founder of the DPF. Um, and I apologize again for running a bit late. It's just been a bit of a difficult day. Uh, I think the topic is almost not uh, worth discussing in the sense it's such a black and white issue of how deeply uh, the lack of institutions and uh, the kind of menace of corruption affect the country's prospects. Um, I don't think there can be any debate about it. But I thought as somebody sitting in active governance, maybe I'll give a few thoughts that uh, uh, you know, guide our policy on how we try and control these things. Uh, let me start by saying that I, in, in my understanding, maybe I'm wrong, but in almost no democracy can you separate uh, money and politics. You know, uh, sooner or later, money is used as a lubricant to buy access to communication or buy access to policymaking. Uh, you know, I've lived uh, about 20 years in the U.S. and a few years in Singapore and functioned uh, professionally in, I don't know, many 20 or 30 countries. And so I've not yet found a place where there's completely zero link between um, campaign contributions, lobbying, and uh, the function of democracy. But what I think is really uh, the dividing line is how insidious, how much of it is documented, how much of it is undocumented, and how far has it penetrated into the culture of society uh, down to every house, down to every street. And uh, in some other context, I made the observation that I don't think, in Tamil Nadu at least, to my knowledge, there's not a single person I've ever met who follows every law, even if it's simply the traffic uh, rules that they violate. So I think, you know, our society has evolved to a point where it's seen as uh, acceptable that uh, everybody cuts corners everywhere. And, uh, you know, surely the culture gets set at the top. So I'm not suggesting that uh, society was rotten to start with. You know, the fish has started rotting from the head down, but now it's rotten all the way to the bottom. Uh, if I go back and say, let's start from my understanding of first principles. At some level, uh, democracy, the movement of power away from a dollar to a one man, one vote was supposed to be the antidote to the kind of uh, inevitable end of all capitalist models that uh, Marx wrote about or Piketty says he's documented with data uh, in, in his book, which is that the, the returns to capital keep increasing, the returns to labor keep going down, and at some point you end up with social strife and blood on the streets. And this notion that democracy, because you start power, empowering people equally irrespective of whether they're rich and poor, uh, is the antidote that can keep things in balance is a powerful notion, you know, in, in theory. In practice, I think, as many have spoken, it really comes down to the institutions of democracy, not just the courts, the election commissions, the, the but simple things like the, you know, the motor vehicle department or the, the uh, you know, cooperative society that supplies uh, 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 rice rations, right? Because if you have functions that uh, if you have institutions that function in a democratic way and implement a level playing field, 
then you have the likelihood of uh, kind of not just better uh, social outcomes, but also better economic outcomes. And you have a more cohesive and a more progressive society. Uh, and inherently, many of these things are designed with built-in conflicts of interest, right? If I'm a minister, I'm the one that has to approve the policy and, you know, somebody below me has to sign off on the tender. Uh, the chance of rent-seeking or the chance of rigging or nepotism are inherently very high because, uh, especially in the function of democracy that we see now, it's almost kind of a mythical cultist leadership with no real voice for the legislature. You know, it's basically the administration. The legislature died slowly till the enactment of the Anti-Defection Act, and then it died quickly uh, in terms of independence. And the judiciary, especially the last few years, has become perhaps a shadow of itself, perhaps not even that. So we have these systems where uh, the, the, the functional aspects of democracy are not visible, are not evidenced, are not felt. And then, of course, the question that we think about is, which is the chicken and which is the egg? Is it that functional democracies with robust institutions lead to economic success? Is it that economic success drives people to demand uh, more functional democracies and more of their institutions? And, you know, which, which is the chicken and which is the egg? I think if, you know, my limited reading, I'm not anywhere near the scholar that uh, the others are, and, you know, practicing politicians always have uh, low ratings, I would say, in this context. But uh, to me, I think it's very clear that institutions create good outcomes rather than good outcomes create institutions, though there's some mutuality and there's some cyclicality, pro-cyclicality. And I think uh, one of the better discussions I heard on this when, we, when I was a banker, we had uh, Neil Ferguson, at that time he was at Harvard, I don't know where he is now, talk about his book, The Great uh, Degeneration, and talking about how the decay of institutions was leading to uh, economic failures and increasing um, you know, spread of wealth, uh, disparity, wealth disparity. So, you know, I think if we look at corruption, the only marginal learning that I've had since I came to office is that corruption is not only about deadweight loss to the economy, it's not, it's not only about unfair outcomes, it's not only about incentivizing the, right the wrong behavior for people to come to office. Uh, the biggest problem of corruption that I have seen is that it in exacerbates inequality at the micro level. Right? If I go to a street in my constituency or if I go to a housing colony which was otherwise very poor area, you know, slum, re, uh, you know, converted and set up as a multi-flat housing colony. What I find is that the humans who have access to a motor where they can tap illegally and draw the water before it goes to the rest of the people, or those who can pay off the engineer and kind of build their house uh, wall a little bit into the road, uh, these, these guys start the ball rolling. And then... Since there are no consequences for that, everybody does the same thing. And pretty soon, you have like the worst of all outcomes where a few people have gone at the, re the, the resources and everybody believes that's the way the world ought to work. So there's this kind of uh, social mm, kind of uh, corrosive value of, of corruption, which far exceeds what I first thought of as just deadweight loss or, or uh, you know, 
um, inopportune gain through rent seeking? I mean, I, I was very interested to hear both the, the scientific perspective and the research papers and the many examples of quantifiable um, effects observed or, or uh, detailed. And also to hear a perspective from, you know, we live in a relatively kind of, uh, what can I say, safe cocoon in places like Tamil Nadu. And I think when we hear from people like Seema, we understand uh, the full depth of the problem. And what, what I take away the most is that she's still hopeful. Because I think, uh, you know, looking from outside, while we feel a bit protected and a bit secure and we know that uh, uh, election after election, we keep getting results that indicate suddenly the whole country is not subject to the, to the same kind of malady. It's still a bit uh, unnerving to hear the other side. Uh, maybe I'll just add one thing. I was talking to a very senior political figure uh, I met for the first time recently. And he was making the point that the fundamental difference between the North and the South is not that there's great difference in values and all there is or there isn't, I don't know. But he feels like in the South, there's been enough of a track record of growth and a track record of good outcomes so that the political debate center around, uh, you know, the future. Who will get how much? Will you grow by this or that? And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it's a... It's a um, I can give you a brighter future, so vote for me, kind of approach. And he was saying that in the North, a lot of it is profoundly affected by the fact that they don't see any hope. They don't see any future. They're not talking about growing the pie. They're talking about the pie that exists, whether it is the natural resources or the handout from the union government, which most of these the northern states are poor enough that they get significant net handouts uh, taken from southern states like Tamil Nadu. That really it's only a question of how do we share the spoils and which caste and which community gets to uh, sit in the, you know, the top slot and which takes the spillovers and so forth. So, I, you know, I was a bit taken aback because he's a very senior person, but it, that's a very disheartening kind of, uh, uh, you know, outcome. And... Um, I mean, it's not central to the topic here, but my point is that if in despite that, from that environment, if there's still hope that, you know, there's a path out of this, then maybe that's what I take away the most. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, there's a question from Mr. Shankar. Shankar, can, can you I, go ahead? I, uh, thank you, Dharani. And uh, Dr. PTR and uh, Seema gave a brilliant overview of how a corruption happens in all levels of the society from the lowest level, like someone in a street extending his uh, housing wall. And uh, Seema was saying there is people getting uh, post-retirement jobs is also a corruption. But when we speak about corruption, uh, my question is, is the focus too much uh, uh, into elected representatives, parliamentarians, and governments? Uh, while the focus is there, uh, we have low calls and all those things, debates going on around. But there's another corruption, which is uh, policy corruption. I mean, influencing a policy with or without a money happening. And what is the kind of checks and balance we could bring in there as a state government? Do we, because we have a lot of limitations. 
say for example the two latest corruptions in my opinion would be nsc national stock exchange it's also huge corruption that is happening and uh, nowadays in the in, in supreme courts there is sealed covers i mean any argument then the argument gets closed if someone says i'll give you a sealed cover which is also a form of corruption so when elected representatives have a check and balance through lokpal or other means so what is that uh, state government could do to contain these kind of uh, policy corruptions since dr ptr also here is here uh, i thought i'll ask this question if i say something it'll be like i'm talking my own book but uh, you know i'll say it anyway uh, though the the root cause of this may have been politicians and even politicians justifying this i spend money to get here therefore i need to get it back uh, incidentally that's why i never paid for votes in any elections that i ran because i said it's not that i don't have the money i don't want to have a reason to take any money out so i'm not paying so you can hold me accountable that if tomorrow you hear i've taken money out i can't say is the money i put in for elections but i think that was the beginning and maybe that's the root cause but today you're right i think the kind of corruption that happens in the bureaucracy on the ground in the judiciary i think those are the things that are much much more uh both what can i say uh profoundly um hope uh, eradicating right i mean i don't know how else to say that if if you can get a you know kind of outcome like that in a you know one of the top courts of the country the, through that process then what is left you know politicians have to get reelected every 5 years or or less so somewhere we have to at least pr- pretend to be something and pretend to have some limits i mean there are people who are completely unaccountable and who have no such uh, term limit right so yeah i mean though as i say i'm talking my own book i don't think the biggest problem here is political elected representative corruption though it's it's hard to fix the bottom without fixing the top um you know but that can change like right? in my department i found a lot of cases or in my in all, you know in my many departments i found a lot of cases of kind of uh, rent seeking for postings and transfers and stuff like that so um i did two things first i put in a very transparent system of tracking all requests and stuff and making it go through the process of uh, the 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 guidelines and so forth but the second thing i did uh, you know i fired or transferred a whole lot of people uh, and uh, brought in a whole lot of new people and changed the procedures and say as long as it's one off or minor promotions it can happen by the officer itself but uh, you know if it's like mass transfer of 200 300 people and all that it has to come to me i have to sign it and uh, that actually is interesting because i think the original design was like that because you know you can't move that many people without it going uh, a, a file to the minister but ironically second order effects of corruption those who are collecting money for that change the procedures and make sure somebody junior signed and it didn't come to them so that they couldn't get prosecuted for it you see 
they can they can influence the outcome uh, by by a phone call, and somebody else has the signature on it. So you know, ironically, the more corrupt you are, the less you want your name on the paper, and you want somebody else to take the. So you delegate more, uh, seemingly delegate more, and somebody else takes the fall. So yeah, I mean, I I yeah I, I don't know. What we can do, I mean, as a HR minister, I would say we're improving certain things. As a finance minister, I say we're increasing the control of audit. We're removing them from their home departments. We're bringing them in. We're going to fundamentally revamp the entire audit process, make sure they're really arm's length. We are, uh, you know, recruiting more transparently only through the Public Service Commission. We've brought new laws that you can't do kind of private uh, uh, recruitment. Uh, if you're a PSU, for example, and we are giving them a lot more training and emphasizing a lot more things. One of the things that I've been recommending, I don't know if we'll ever get to it, but when I was a banker, uh, after the global financial crisis particularly, most regulators insisted that at least all functional bankers, maybe not the managing directors and all that, had to take certain online courses and pass online tests every year. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, Anti-Money Laundering, etc. And what those tests did, of course, they kept reminding you what the rules were. So, you know, in theory, they had that primary effect. The secondary effect was that without doing it, you couldn't continue to, to, to function. The next effect was that, you know, if you ever got caught doing something wrong, you couldn't say, I didn't know. And the, the most important effect was that uh, at least they they kind of made sure that other people would tell on you if they caught you because they knew for a fact what was not on you know what was acceptable or not. And so I mean, when, to the limited extent I had, I said no, it must be extended to managing directors and everybody too. We must set the tone from the top. So you know all these certifications were done. So I've been saying to my secretary here that we must do some of these trainings. They have to pass the exam. It means they actually have to have understood the training to pass the exam. It's not It's not automatic. It's not that trivial. And then they have self-certified that they now know that what they're doing is wrong if they get caught doing something wrong because they've gone through the certification. So, you know, these kinds of practices I think we can bring. But these are, you know, these are more the low, lower to mid-level, you know, but many in number, hundreds of thousands of employees of the state government probably the union. You know, when it gets to the top and all that, it's hard for me to see how, I mean, but then the judiciary is broken in so many hundreds of ways that this might not be the biggest problem for the judiciary, right? Uh, the, the gap between filing and listing, the selectiveness in processing, uh, the, the cold storage of lacks and lacks. I mean, don't get me started, so I'll just stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Sergey. Thank you, Seema. Very enlightening. Thanks for your views. And I hope to uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you.